Well, welcome to City Life Suffolk. And shout out to everybody from Suffolk that went up and represented and watched the movie in Newport News. Yes, they showed uh, the film there. They got a huge drop down screen. It's not like watching it on the TVs here. But of course, all that takes a, a tech team, people that know what they're doing. And I just want to give a shout out tonight, briefly, as we start. Uh, to somebody that's just been going above and beyond the call of duty. He's usually here before most of us are, and he usually leaves after everybody but myself has leaved. And his name is Greg Reed, and he serves his tail off, and nobody ever really pays attention to anybody back here except for when something goes wrong. So let's give, a, give him some love. That's the, the crab guy. So there's a couple gift cards in there. He loves it. If y'all haven't seen his woodworking, he's got skills. There's talent here at City Life. If we did City Life has talent, he would be up here with his group statue, all kinds of stuff he makes. But uh, that man loves some Marvel, and I respect that. Uh, Marvel is better than DC, and Hannah, if you ever podcast this, you're a fool. She was the one that said Wonder Woman, and it's okay because we're, we're good friends. A beautiful fool, according to my wife. Thank you, Seth. <laughs> but also a shout-out to any of our college grads, right? Jackie, you just graduated, correct? Marina right in front of her. Your son, Alan, just graduated. We have some grads that just graduated college, so congrats to you. Um, I know Stephanie Burke, she had me write something down for her son Campbell that's about to graduate high school. And I feel like one of the universal uh, grad verses, verses that you would write in a card to a graduate or maybe is already printed in the card to a graduate is usually Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 6, where it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. It's a powerful verse. But actually, when I wrote something down for Stephanie's son, Campbell, I, I went to the next chapter because it was something that God was stirring in my heart and actually prompted this sermon tonight. And it's Proverbs chapter 4, verse 18, which says, The path of the righteous is like the morning sun, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. But you know, not just graduations, what also is on the calendar that kind of illuminates this verse for us is in just a little bit over a month, uh, a dozen city lifers are going back to the Dominican Republic to uh, minister to a village that we sponsored there for 10 years. And we've gone multiple times. And we're going back in June, at the end of June, going into July. And it's transformative. And I'm excited because we've got seven people going this year that have never gone before. And when you go on that trip, it changes you. <laughs> You're changed. You come back with a new perspective. You come back full because of the week you've had there. So we're flying out on June 24th. We're landing in Santo Domingo, and then we take that six-hour drive west to this village up in the hills. I don't know if you've ever seen a movie, right, where they've got a hostage, and they put the, the, the pillowcase, whatever, over their head so they can't see where they're taking them. So they don't know how they got there. It's a little bit like that, only not literally, right? But everybody who's going on the trip was just looking at me crazy. But uh, it's not literally like that, but you often get to the village just because it's a full day of travel. We don't arrive till 10 11 at night, it's dark. But what I love is all the kids in the village are, are out hanging out just waiting for you to get there. And they're trying to greet you and remember names. You can't even see people because it's so dark. So then you go to bed that night in that village in total darkness. And I remember the first time I woke up in that village. Well, maybe it was like the 10th time I woke up because there's, there's roosters there. And the roosters there aren't like the roosters in the cartoon that don't crow until the sun comes up. They start at like 2 a.m. And they go all night. And there's all kinds of animals making noises all night long. But I can remember the first time I woke up there and walked outside and just thought, wow. Because you're surrounded by hills. 
You're surrounded by this beautiful view, and nothing could have prepared me for that. Nobody even tried to prepare me for that. I remember our, our elder here, Nate Nowotny, went last year, and the first thing he said the first morning we were there is like, wow, I did not think it was going to be this beautiful. And you know, there are times in life that are like this, where in a moment it feels like we're enveloped in darkness, in doubt, maybe in confusion, and then something happens, whether it's a shift in perspective, it's a reminder from scripture, it's a prophetic word, that just something switches where it, everything seems illuminated. Like I can remember when I first gave my life to Christ, the first book of scripture I read was Romans. And as you read through Romans, and as I read through Romans as a new believer, it felt like he was illuminating so many things in life that maybe I had felt, but I'd never understood before. It was like the lights went on and everything began to make sense. But you know, there are a lot of times in life that are kind of like the one morning we went on a hike up one of these hills surrounding the village. So we had to be back in time for all the work we had lined up doing VBS for the kids. So we had to leave at 4.30 in the morning. Now, I'm not familiar with 4.30 in the morning. I now have a two-year-old, right? And he wake, I saw 4 in the morning last night. <laughs> but uh, before that, I, did, I didn't see 4.30 in the morning very often. And maybe you're not familiar with 4.30 in the morning. At 4.30 in the morning, it's dark. And up there in those hills in that village, there's no light pollution. It's just plain dark. <laughs> it's, it's dark outside. So at 4.30, when we were leaving, we had our headlamps on. We just knew the direction the farmers went in the morning up this hill because some of them, the whole reason we're raising money for an irrigation system there, some of them hike three, four hours to get to the fields where they work and try to harvest their crops to support their families. So we just knew, hey, they go this direction, down this road. And we just started walking with our headlamps in the darkness. Slightly intimidating because nobody knew where we were going other than we're just going to try to follow these paths. And uh, it's dark. So we had to remember how to get back. <laughs> and we couldn't see much further than here. But we had headlamps on. But of course, after a couple hours, if you've ever been up that early, the sun slowly begins to creep over the horizon and things begin to get a little gray. And then you can see a little further. And by the time we had finished this hike, I don't know what time it was, but the sun had risen. And the view, the panorama was simply beautiful. It was remarkable. And again, none of us really knew where we were going when we started because it was dark. But I believe we also had these mountaintop moments in our life where it feels like a peak. There's joy. Uh, Brennan Manning, one of my favorite authors, he uses this random phrase, the attack of the happies, right? Where it's your wedding day or maybe the birth of your child or the dedication of that same child or it's your baptism. Or these moments in life you work so hard for and it feels like a mountaintop moment. But if we're honest, it takes a lot of valleys and sometimes dark seasons to get there. And sometimes when we start out in pursuit of that, it's dark. But by the time we get there, it's been illuminated. See, Proverbs 4 talks about these paths of righteousness and how it's like the rising of the morning sun. And the author of these verses is, is Solomon, King Solomon. He's in the Old Testament. He wrote the book of Proverbs. He was the son of King David, right, king of Israel. And his father may have influenced this, this proverb because as David writes in Psalm 23, maybe you're familiar with it, in verse 3, that God leads me, he leads us, in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So we see mention of these paths of righteousness, but it also talks in Psalm 23 about how he leads us through the valleys of the shadow of death. And this isn't just like a shadow, like walking under a tree or maybe a, a cloud passes overhead. Other translations call it the valley of deepest darkness. The sunless valley of deep darkness. Bottom line is dark. It's so dark you can feel it. And God leads us in life through these seasons. And the key word is he leads us through it. 
But navigating those seasons can be tough. When the path isn't clear, when it's still 5.30 a.m., we can barely see our hand in front of our face, and everything's a little gray. It's not yet black and white. And I think sometimes we can be paralyzed by indecision in the middle of the path he has us on. And if we can be paralyzed by when things aren't clear and when they're not black and white, we can be paralyzed in God's purpose and the path he has for us. You know, sometimes I think, I know in my case and maybe in yours, we can be terrified to walk in faith because we think if we make the wrong turn, we feel as if God will forsake us the moment we do. So we never make bold, faith-filled steps in life. And then other times, as I'll address tonight, there are, there are other times when you can paralyze your purpose and your progress on the path God has for you because you just foolishly follow your feelings. But we are called to walk in faith. How do we strike a, pop, a proper balance when it feels like it's 5 a.m.? Not everything is illuminated. It's not black and white. The path forward isn't clear. How do we walk in faith and not in foolishness? Foolishness. <laughs> wow. Solomon. Solomon, he's actually a good example. Now, actually, Solomon uh, in Proverbs 4.18, again, he writes this verse where he says, the path of the righteous is like the morning sun, shining ever brighter until the full light of day. See, we're called to follow Jesus. We're called to walk by faith. We're called to move as we follow him and take steps of faith. And again, our path is sometimes like the morning sun. At 5 a.m., things kind of seem gray because light's not illuminating all the colors. It's not high contrast. Everything isn't yet clear. And there are seasons in life where God has spoken clearly to what we're walking through. We know clearly what he intends for us. In those seasons, we do what he said. But then there's other seasons where it's more gray than it is black and white. And we're called to use wisdom, discernment, God's word, his values to do what seems best. You know, life is complex. Following Christ will be complex. And we can't let complexities of life paralyze us when God is calling us to take big steps of faith in life. Maybe it's why David, who is called a man after God's own heart, which speaks to pursuit, which speaks to movement. He said in Psalm 131, verse 1, I don't concern myself with matters too great or too awesome for me to grasp. Because for him to run after God's heart, he couldn't spend time paralyzed by indecision or grappling with things that he would never fully grasp. You know, if you're taking notes, Deuteronomy 29, 29 is a powerful verse. Uh, you can go there later. I don't have time to break it all down. But Moses basically tells the Israelites, look, there are some things that are a mystery. God knows the answer. But there's other things that he's made plain. Obey those things. Right? Walk in those things. But that's Deuteronomy 29, 29 if you're taking notes. But the enemy loves. The enemy loves for what we don't understand or fully have clarity on to fully paralyze us. We stop moving, we stop following the path God has for us because I don't understand this over here. I don't understand the why behind this. And it can become easy to become plagued by indecision or crippled by this fear of making a wrong turn in life. But I want to shift some of our perspectives tonight perhaps because God isn't waiting for us to make a wrong turn so he can hit us with lightning or whatever you think he might do. He sees our heart, he sees our thoughts, and he knows our intentions. Solomon is actually a really good example of this. When you look at 1 Kings chapter 3, in 1 Kings chapter 3, we're still being introduced to Solomon and his life. And it says in 1 Kings chapter 3 and verses 3 through 4, it says Solomon loved the Lord and followed all the decrees of his father David, except that Solomon too offered sacrifices and burned incense at the local places of worship. The most important of these places of worship was Gibeon. 
So the king went there and sacrificed a thousand burnt offerings. So first, it's important to note, it says Solomon, he loved the Lord. And Solomon wanted to show his devotion to God, so he went to this place, Gibeon, he made this massive, prolific, no doubt costly offering, a thousand burnt offerings to God. Seems like quite a gesture, right? There's only one problem. Gibeon wasn't just a local place of worship. Other translations translate it as a high place. Now, a high place in the Old Testament were these places that the pagans had used to worship. And when God was sending the Israelites into the promised land, he didn't say, hey, I want you guys to repurpose these high places for your worship. No, he said, I want you to wipe them out, get rid of them, eliminate these high places, and yet here they are. There's a, a parallel account in Scripture to Kings. It's called Chronicles. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 1, it says that at this time, the tabernacle was here in Gibeon. And what's important and what's at the heart of the issue is that the Ark of the Covenant wasn't there. It was actually in Jerusalem at this time. And it, why does that matter? Because if you read the Old Testament and study Leviticus like we did for weeks just recently, God's presence was with the ark. That's where atonement was made and sacrifices were made. That's where he said he would meet with his people in the book of Exodus. So essentially the Israelites had taken the tabernacle, which was just the housing for it, and thrown it up here in this high place. And they kept worshiping there, even though, according to God's word, he was entirely absent. He was in Jerusalem. All that to say, there's a lot going on here in just a couple verses. And not much good, not much that they're doing right. And this is where Solomon goes to perform this massive act of worship before God. And if you've read this before, you know God is about to show up. So if he's doing all these things wrong, when God appears to him, he's going to hit him with lightning, right? He's going to at least tell him straight or, or put him in his place for sure. That's what he'll do, right? Only he doesn't. God doesn't show up to punish him. He actually gives him a proposal. And the proposal is noteworthy because in verse 5, it says that the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream. And God asked, what do you want? Ask, and I will give it to you. Seems a little odd, considering the circumstances and the context. But you know, we as readers of the Bible have this bird's eye view of all of Scripture in light of history, in light of context. And it's possible, and I dare say it's, it's probable that Solomon, he wasn't performing sacrifices there out of high-handed disobedience or deliberate disobedience, but he had what we might call a blind spot. He'd misstepped. And it's powerful that God wasn't sitting there ready to give him a proverbial supernatural spanking because he misstepped. He knew his heart. He knew his intentions. He knew his thoughts. And we see in this account, Solomon doesn't reply to this like maybe some of us would be like, I want a million dollars. I want to be immortal, right? I want all these different things. Solomon, I love Solomon's reply in the Amplified Version. He said, he said he asks for, in the Amplified Version, a hearing heart and an understanding mind. Such a good request. I, I pray that again and again. God, give me a hearing heart and an understanding mind. He asks for wisdom. He asks for discernment. Because he realized God had made him a king and a steward of the Israelites, and he needed wisdom and discernment to do that well. It's a good heart. That's a good request. And God is so appreciative of it that he doesn't just give him that. He goes on and says, I'm going to give you riches. I'm going to give you long life and health. It's remarkable that, that God does this for him. And you know what? It gives me hope. Because even when I still have blind spots, and I still do, and even when I don't get it right, and sometimes I still don't, God knows my heart. 
God shows grace. Sure, high-handed disobedience, deliberate disobedience and sin, it provokes him to anger. But he doesn't terminate me when I make a wrong turn. God shows grace. God isn't some cranky, touchy, explosive God waiting for us to screw up. He's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. God is love, and his inclination is love. And again, that should give us hope. That should help us step forward in our purpose and not have this low-grade fear when things are a little more gray than they are black and white, that we're going to make a wrong step, and we get paralyzed because of lack of clarity. The enemy loves, again, for us to adopt this portrait of God that's stern and ready to terminate us the moment we make a wrong turn. Because then he can keep us from ever walking in faith. Because walking in faith means we don't have clarity. Walking in faith means we trust in those things we don't see. Life takes faith. I was meeting with somebody recently over coffee, and we were having a conversation. And talking about this, that, and the third. And he asked me, do I believe in the idea of the one? Right? Like you find the one, you marry the one, you love the one for the rest of your life. And I gave him the long answer. But the short answer is, is if you put stock in that, eventually you'll be disappointed when you wake up next to a whole other one. And I'm not talking about adultery and fidelity, but I am saying when you live with somebody long enough, you're going to get version 2.0, 3.0, 4.0, because we change. As life hands us curveballs, as we go through mountaintops and peaks and valleys, you marry the one. But you get about a dozen or more other versions of that one as you're married to them over the years. I had another conversation with another gentleman years back. And he was concerned. He, he was talking to me. And he said, this isn't who I married. I said, yeah, duh. <laughs> People change. There's also hope in that. Because if you're, if you're both living, wanting to become more like Christ, and God is working all things for good, then yes, we can also change for the better. And this isn't the end. That's not the final chapter for them. This isn't the final chapter for you. So my answer in short is, no, <laughs> I don't believe in the one. But when I was younger, I did. You know, I believe that, yeah, Disney movies taught me right, right? Nicholas Sparks books, they, they teach you right, that there's one person out there for you. You got to find them. How many of you guys know that's intimidating? How many people are in the world? Like six billion? Somebody knows. So how many, how many females are there, right? I know what, a couple hundred? And I'm supposed to know that the one I choose is the one? I haven't seen all the other ones, right? Like how do I know with any kind of certitude that this one is the one when I haven't met all of them, right? This, you could just... Mental gymnastics and going a marathon in your brain, thinking about these things. I used to get so concerned about finding God's perfect will in this situation or that situation and not what you could call his permissible will because I didn't want to miss the mark. I want God's perfect will for my life. And that's good sentiment. But as I kept following Christ, I began to realize that was just kind of a churchy, religious mask that I would put on a lack of faith. A lack of a willingness to walk in faith where I want clarity and certitude and I don't have trust. I lack faith. It's what I began to realize as I began to grapple with these things more and more. You know, there will be big decisions in life that affect us as well as others. Big decisions, right? Who you do get married to. Uh, buying a house. Deciding to have kids. You always want to be ready. How many of you guys know you've done those? You're never ready. <laughs> You're never fully ready to take any of those steps. It takes faith. Big callings that God might have in, in your life, callings he had on our lives, selling that house we bought in Newport News, buying one here to plant a church, uh, 
starting the adoption process. These were steps of faith that we didn't have perfect clarity on. We started that adoption process not knowing where the money was going to come from, right? It takes faith. It takes, you don't know for certain, but you trust. You have faith. I know for me, for a long time, and a lot of people, we suffer from a phobia of making big decisions. And common churchy advice is, well, you'll feel peace about it. And there's good sentiment in that, right? Philippians 4 talks about God wants to give us a peace that's beyond understanding. Galatians talks about the same peace, but when it's talking about that peace, it's not so much about uh, seasons of life and decisions we make in life. It's about being reconciled to God and the peace that comes from that. When you make decisions in life, God's callings usually take us out of our comfort zone. And usually when I'm making a decision and I have peace about it, that's the comfortable choice. (laughs) I get to stay in my comfort zone, and that's why I have peace about it. A lot of times, these big steps of faith that God has for us, it takes stretching. That makes us uncomfortable. And I'm not saying that when you make decisions according to God's will, you should be walking in stress. I'm not saying that at all. But even you look at Jesus before he fulfilled his purpose and went to the cross. He wasn't in the garden of Gethsemane picking four-leaf clovers and flowers. He was sweating blood, right? If you stay paralyzed until you feel perfect peace or crystal clarity, you'll rarely walk in God's purposes. When things aren't black and white, when they're not crystal clear, man, just seek God's face for a season, right? Go to his word. Go to people he's put in your life. Pray about it. Seek his face for a season. Trust in him as you step out. And then, man, as you take those steps, honor him as you move forward in it. The longer I've followed Christ, I realize again and again there are some areas where God cares less about the path we choose, but he cares about how we walk that path. God cares less about the path we choose. He cares if we glorify him and honor him on that path. What do I mean? Well, God didn't care what you ate for lunch yesterday. I don't think. You can debate me on that after service, right? But he does care how we steward our bodies. He does care how we take care of the bodies he's given us. And God might not have a specific person for us to marry, but he does give us plenty of wisdom and instruction, not only in how to find them, but how to live a life of intimacy with our spouse. He gives us wisdom for it. God may not have a specific calling for you or one job for you, but he's giving you talents and opportunities and wisdom to go about finding a place where you can serve him and love and serve your neighbor in the community he's put you in. God might not have one car for you, right? Like, I remember I was a a new believer praying about the next car I was going to get and laboring in prayer about it and which car, my God, get me, don't give me one that's going to break down and just praying and praying and praying about this car. I don't think God has one car from eternity set in mind for us, but he does care about stewarding our money, stewarding our finances, uh, leaving room for generosity. There's a lot of areas in life where ultimately they're nuanced, they're gray, they're not black and white. And where God makes it clear, obey him in that. But where the shades of gray, man, seek his face, trust him as you step into it. And as you walk in it, seek to honor and glorify him in all you do. Don't worry about what you don't understand. To the point that it paralyzes you. <laughs> Don't let, but, but let what you do understand propel you. You know, underneath it all, understand that we're called to walk by faith, not by sight. Right? So often we ask for clarity on all of the above, and we wait for clarity that, quote unquote, gives us peace. But <laughs> the Bible doesn't say that we'll walk by clarity and by clear sight. It says we'll walk by faith and not by sight. We can cripple our calling when we demand clarity rather than walking in faith. 
in a lot of ways, clarity, knowing for certain, is the opposite of faith and trusting in the things we can't see and the things we hope for. Martin Luther King, he has the great quote where he says, faith is taking the first step when you can't yet see the whole staircase. Right? The, the whole staircase isn't clear, but you know God has called you to take that step. Take that step and trust that he will illuminate, just like the morning sun, illuminate the rest of that staircase. There's a, a new book. I wish Steph was still sitting there. She bought it. I just read chapters of it. But it's by Bob Goff. And he's got a quote in there where he says, I've met a lot of people who say they're waiting for God to give them a plan for their lives. They talk about this plan like it's a treasure map God has folded up in his back pocket. Only pirates have those. People who want a reason to delay often wait for plans. See, the enemy loves any kind of delay that he can put on God's destiny in your life or in our life as the church. He loves to any delay or derailing that he can do of God's destiny. We often become paralyzed waiting for perfect clarity or what Bob Goff would jokingly call a pirate's map or a plan. But God wants us in life to be obedient to what he's made clear. Sure, some scripture is dense. <laughs> some scripture is hard to unpack. Some of the prophecies in scripture or some of the, the things in scripture, they're dense. But a majority of scripture, I would say a lot of scripture is plain. And God hasn't just made it plain, it's simple and plain. Like for instance, take Micah chapter 6 verse 8. Where it says, what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And when Jesus came, he doesn't add to these three things. He actually strips it down even further to two. The two greatest commands for Jesus were love God, right, and love your neighbor. And sure, kindness, humility, justice, those are understood within that. There's a whole lot understood. Matter of fact, he says it encompasses the whole law to love God and love others and love our neighbor. This should be chief among our values. See, see, values should form what we would call a moral compass, or would commonly be called a moral compass, that when things are gray, when, again, there's not black and white, when we lack perfect clarity about the right thing to do, you can ask, well, according to these values, what's kind? What's just? What's humble? And you can add so much to that list from the Bible, qualities that, and virtues that God calls us to inform what would be a moral compass. Because we may not have a treasure map calling but man faith if, if you're on a ship and we're making this analogy to pirates like bob goff does right faith is like that sail you put up that that pushes you forward and then you can have this compass of god's values that helps you make it through when you can't see well when it's five in the morning when things are gray more than they are black and white come on identify those values include those values in your decisions and implement those values in your routine there might be seasons of life that totally wreck your habits, but man, values transcend that. They can go with you. That's how you form this compass. But creating, working from values and a moral compass, that'll help you make decisions amidst controversy. Make a stand when there's controversy. Face hard decisions. Not be paralyzed when God calls you in faith on the path of purpose. So if we're called to walk by faith, and not be paralyzed by a low-grade fear of making a wrong turn. What about when I've got values and a moral compass? You've got values and a moral compass. You've got a moral compass over there, and we don't go through the gray the same way. What about when your moral compass gives you this decision, and I don't agree on the matter? Well, we get online, right? 
get on Facebook, call each other heretics, right? Tell each other turn or burn, start throwing rocks, pro proverbial rocks on, on message boards online. I, I do my best to demonize you, right? Because you don't agree with me on this, this matter. There's a powerful chapter in the Bible, again, as I'm reading through Romans again, in Romans 14. In the early church, there was no consensus about whether it was okay to eat the meat that had been used in, in pagan sacrifices by pagans. There was big disagreement about whether you should eat it or whether you should let it be. For, there was good arguments for both sides. For some, it's like if you eat that food, you might as well partake in the worship. Right? You're eating meat that was sacrificed in pagan worship. How could you eat that? And then for others, it's, what's wrong with that? Still tastes good? Like it's not contaminated by, by spirits that will enter into my body when I eat it? Others said it was no big deal. You could imagine if there was Facebook at this time, <laughs> if there was message boards, the kind of things these people would have been calling each other and how they would have been at each other's throat over how could you and why could you and Jesus said this and Jesus didn't say that. And there wasn't that, but apparently either somebody asked Paul directly or he caught wind of it because in one of the most prominent letters that he ever wrote to the church, he addresses this issue. And his answer probably isn't what they were expecting. In Romans 14, essentially, he says, well, you're both right. In Romans 14, verses 14 through 19, Paul says, I know and am convinced on the authority of Lord Jesus that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat. But if someone believes it is wrong, then for that person, it is wrong. And if another is distressed by what you eat, you're not acting in love if you eat it. Don't let your eating ruin someone for whom Christ died. Then you will not be criticized for doing something you believe is good. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you serve Christ with this attitude, you will please God and others will approve of you too. So then let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. He goes on to say, blessed are those who don't feel guilty for doing something they have decided is right. But if you have doubts about whether or not you should eat something, you're sinning if you go ahead and do it. For you're not following your convictions. If you do anything you believe is not right, you're sinning. So Paul makes a powerful point in this passage. One we, we should heed or we'll fall into dangerous legalism. We can confuse with what we don't like with what God forbids and calls sin. Because yes, God forbids many things in scripture and calls them sins and are what we might call issues of timeless morality. You go kill somebody, yeah, that's, that's still wrong. That hasn't changed, right? Sexual immorality, that hasn't changed. There's a lot of timeless morality in Scripture, black and white, right and wrong. But then there's what Paul begins to describe in this passage, matters of conscience. I started following Christ when I was 21, a senior at William & Mary, and I was an alcoholic. To the point where if somebody talked about alcohol, I would just break out in a cold sweat. Like, I was an alcoholic, so... My conviction at that time was I'm not going to touch a drop of alcohol. And I didn't touch a drop of alcohol for seven years. But you know, my dad drinks a beer when he orders pizza. He'll drink a beer. I didn't think he was deliberately sinning against God when he did that. But for me, my conviction, I wasn't touching alcohol. Again, I didn't touch a drop of alcohol for seven years. It's a lot like the believers Paul was addressing who wanted no part of the meat offering that was taking place in pagan worship. It was a matter of conscience. That doesn't sit right with you? Cool. But don't condemn or, <laughs> or throw stones at somebody who does. 
God doesn't need our help like he didn't get all the rules right in the Bible or didn't. He's not up in heaven like wringing his hands like, oh, man, I didn't explain whether you should watch rated R comedies versus PG-13 movies or PG or you should only watch Christian movies or listen to Christian. Like he didn't address everything. Some things in life, they become matters of conviction. Life is complex. But also importantly, there's what you could call foregoing liberty. I had a couple gentlemen who were in their later 20s that discipled me after I started following Christ, and we would meet up at restaurants. Now, at that time, when I'm a recovering alcoholic, I wouldn't have said, oh, you're sinning if you drank a, a beer, but because they loved me, they didn't, right? They, for, they went, they for, what is the tense I'm looking for? Foregone? They forwent that liberty? I don't, where's the, I was an Englishman. Anybody else? Thank you. They would forego that liberty on my behalf. In verses 19 through 21, Paul says, remember, all foods are acceptable, but it's wrong to eat something if it makes another person stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else if it might cause another believer to stumble. You may believe there's nothing wrong with what you're doing, but keep it between yourself and God. Again, I don't believe it's sinful to have a glass of wine, but if you're sitting with a recovering alcoholic and you go ahead and start chugging some wine, you're a jerk, right? Paul's saying, look, you should forego that liberty so that you can bless this brother and sister that you're walking with, right? Who's trying to follow Christ the same way you are. So all of this is crucial, again, to realize there's issues. Yes, there's issues of timeless morality. Black and white hasn't changed. I could go down the list, but again, murder, adultery, these things, they haven't changed. There's matters of conscience. There's foregoing liberty, and it's, it's crucial for us to embrace this, to navigate a life that's not always black and white. It's complex. Otherwise, we'll go to battle, wage war with brothers and sisters in the faith over things Paul would have been like, you're both right. Like, neither of you are wrong. Why, why, are, you, why, are, you, why do you have beef with one another? That's my generation would say, right? Again, imagine if they had the internet. What would have happened over this issue? Verbal warfare, division over things that Really, Paul wasn't sweating. We shouldn't have been sweating. Why do I share all this in Romans 14? Not because I think it, it, it paralyzes individuals and their purpose as much as it can paralyze our purpose as a church, cripple our witness as the church. Jesus said we'll be known by our love for one another, but how often on like Christian websites or just all over the, the world, right, believers go at each other's neck over things that Paul would have just deemed a matter of conscience. And we're no more for our pettiness than we are our love for one another. You know, wisdom is sometimes knowing the things you need to cling to and the things that you can hold with an open hand. Or knowing the hill that you're called to die on, right? There's right, it's wrong, it's black and it's white, or those hills that you can still meet on because you're both right. But don't mistake this, please don't mistake this, as some universal call to tolerance at the sake of truth. Because we better not forget, again, there are plenty of matters of timeless morals in the Bible. Black and white, right and wrong, clear as day, fully illuminated, commands in our Bibles. We can't treat those like matters of conscience. Matter of fact, if we do those things and it doesn't prick our conscience, most likely we're living a paralyzed spirituality where we're not moving. There's a paralysis of purpose. We see it in Solomon's story. It wasn't a refusal to walk in faith like we already talked about. It was, he simply walked in folly. And it's notable, so it should be a warning to everybody in all time because Solomon was no fool. It says in Scripture he was the wisest man to grace the earth at that time. This man had wisdom, he had knowledge, he knew things. He wrote Proverbs. 
Seems like he had it all figured out in Proverbs. Yet he goes out, he goes down in history as a tragedy and as a failure because what he knew was right in his head didn't make it, what, 18 inches to his heart? Didn't make it to his hands and feet and what he did and his actions, it was cut off at the neck. You know who certainly didn't believe in this idea of the one? Solomon. You know how many wives he had? 700. Right there in scripture. We get this crazy account in 1 Kings 11. It says in 1 Kings 11, verses 1 through 8, which I'll read. There's just a portion of it on the screen. It says, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, who was his first wife. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashereth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. It says on a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Kamash, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifice to their gods. It says the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. So there's a lot of powerful passages in the Bible and notable phrases in Scripture, and one of the ones I've never forgot is this nevertheless in this passage because it's powerful. Another translation says, well, Solomon insisted. He persisted in spite of knowledge otherwise. This wasn't some blind spot. This was deliberate disobedience. And sometimes in life, I don't need to know more. I simply do need to obey more of what I know. We ask for more from God, reveal more. God's waiting for us to obey what he's already given us. So many times in my life, I've compromised and there's been a nevertheless. God wants to remove those again and again in our life. You know, 1 Kings 3, it speaks to Solomon's love of the Lord. 1 Kings 11 speaks to his heart turning away from the Lord. In 1 Kings 3, it was worshiping God at a high place. But in 1 Kings 11, he was constructing high places for the worship of other gods. In one, it's possible he didn't know better, but God knew his heart. Here, he knew better. And God knew his heart. And it paralyzes his purpose. Not just that, it cancels his legacy. Solomon was a man who experienced heights like few other people in history or in the Bible. But ultimately, he goes down as a failure in Scripture because he forsook the Lord. God says to him, since you have not kept my covenant and disobeyed my decrees, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you. All this happened to a man who, as it mentions here in this passage, God had appeared to twice. We might think, man, God, if you would just show up and tell me, I'd do it. You would just reveal yourself, speak it loud and clear, I do it. But so often in life, there's that nevertheless. Happened to Adam and Eve, happens to Solomon, it can happen to all of us. None of us are immune. Man, if I could have the worship team come up. God might not uh, appear to us in this life, but scripture says that eventually we'll all stand face to face with Jesus at the end of our days. And, and basically it says we'll hold a conversation. And I'll have a long list of my wives. My questions, right? The, the questions we've added up our entire life. We're like, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God this. There's going to be the serious ones. Like, why did this person go so soon? 
Why did this person have chronic pain their entire life? Why? It's going to be questions like, why did you create cockroaches? Why did you create mosquitoes? Right? Why do my socks disappear in the dryer? How does that happen? Right? There's going to be these why questions we ask God. Again, Deuteronomy 29, mysteries that we're not going to understand in this life, but that won't be at the heart of what we talk about. At least it's not going to be at the top. Jesus won't dive into all these people. You didn't have clarity on this, so let me explain it. No, he'll address whether we walk in faith-filled pursuit of all he did make clear. The crystal clear call we have in scripture to love God and love our neighbor. You know, Matthew 25, Jesus says, first and foremost, we'll talk about how either we helped people or didn't help people. The people on the fringe, people that are forgotten. What we did for those, Jesus says, we did unto him. It's this commentary and connection of this call to love God and love our neighbor. When you love on your neighbor, when you love on somebody that has a need, Jesus says, you're loving on God. You're loving on Jesus. God wants us to be obedient to what he's made abundantly clear in Scripture. Not use a lack of clarity or waiting for a plan, as Bob Goff would have said, to not move in faith. Matter of fact, he calls us to walk by faith, not by sight. Take big steps. And as we do that, we have verses like Micah 6, 8, which tell us, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? May we navigate life with the sail of faith lifted up that pushes us forward and these moral, this moral compass of values that God hands us in scripture to help us navigate the gray. When I, everything isn't black and white. And may we trust that God in his sovereignty, like it says in Proverbs, will illuminate those things for us as we step forward in faith. If we could stand, we're gonna go back into worship. But I just wanna pray for all of us first and then maybe for individuals as we go into worship. But God, I pray that you would remove, God, our low-grade fear of failure, God, that keeps us from walking in faith. God, may we walk humbly with you, knowing that we'll need your grace in this life as we follow you, but you freely give it. You're a good, good father. God, you gave us your son so that we could be called your sons and daughters. And while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. This is the good news. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can stand before the cross. We did it one time and say, God, we don't have it all together. I need your grace. And we can stand before the cross tonight and say, God, we don't have it all together. We need your grace. May we live in light of the grace that covers it all. God, this grace that covers us and this grace that calls us forward. You have purposes. You have a destiny. You have a calling for each individual in this church and for us as a church as a whole. And it calls us forward. And God, I pray that we wouldn't put on these religious masks that are looking for peace and clarity as an excuse to not walk in faith when you've called us forward. Help us to lay these masks down tonight and pick up trust. Help us in our unbelief. Stir up our faith. Stir up our trust. God, to follow you. May faith be our fuel and may trust God our steps. And may we be faithful to do what you've made abundantly clear you've called us to do. Love you. Love your church. And as your church, love the people you've placed in our lives. Not just the people far off in the hills of the DR, the people we pass in the coffee house, the people we know at our workplace, our neighbors, those people that surround us that need the hope we have, or those people on the fringes that feel forgotten and forsaken by you, Lord God. Help us to truly be your hands and feet and walk in the clear calling you've given us, the great commission the two great commands, God. You've given us these things that are abundantly clear, God, and I pray that the enemy wouldn't be able to paralyze our pursuit or, or, or get us to...
pitch a tent on our pathway where you're calling us forward into new steps of faith, Lord God, sharing what we have. God, I pray those things for us as a church because, again, you have a, a calling and a destiny, not just for each person here. God, you've got a calling and a destiny for this church. You've put us here for a reason in this region, in Suffolk, on the fringe of Carrollton and Smithfield, Portsmouth, Chesapeake, Norfolk, Lord God. You put us here to, to build your kingdom and take big steps of faith and reach those you've put around us, Lord God. I pray that we would be faithful in that. But you know what? I, tonight as we go into worship, you, you know if you're on the, the cusp of a big decision. Maybe it's a move. It's a job offer. Buying a house. Proposals. I don't know what it is. But if you know there's a step in front of you, choosing where to go to college, what to do after college, you just know it's going to take steps of faith. And you live like, or you live like I do sometimes and certainly did with this low-grade sense of fear that I won't choose God's perfect will. And sometimes it, it strikes fear in your heart. That's not from God. God, I pray that for each one of those people that you are calling soon. Some of us, we have steps of faith that we don't know about yet. But for others, we know that there's big steps you're calling us to take. And we need to make a decision, Lord God. I pray that you would give us, God, your spirit. God, give us like, like Solomon asked for, hearing hearts and understanding minds. God, as we go into worship, if you, if you need to, you know that you're walking into a season where you're going to need to take steps of faith. And man, take some literal steps up to this altar. Some people came up at the end of the first worship set. It's going to be open during this worship set. But then lastly, if you've never taken that first step to follow Christ, Jesus does say, follow me. We are called to be followers of Jesus. If you've never said, I want to follow you, I want you to be Lord, I want you to be Savior, then let that night be tonight. Man, come forward too, and I'll be right here. I would love to pray for you. But as we come back into worship, again, if you know that, man, you need God to help you in your unbelief, help you take these steps of faith, help you navigate this gray, then, man, let's come to him in worship. Let's praise him tonight.